invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Epistle of James. James chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 to 12. I'll be looking mainly at verses 4 to 10. James chapter 4, if you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1201, near the end of the Bible there. As you're turning there, I just want to make one mention, one correction from this morning, actually. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, most of the time preachers, after they preach a sermon during the course of the afternoon, I reflect and think, okay, did I say anything that was off? Or maybe it wasn't accurate. And I, I believe I referenced Isaiah chapter 714 coming from Matthew, which is correct. It came from Matthew. However, I believe I said that uh, the angel spoke to Mary and reference that he will be called Emmanuel. Well, that was incorrect. I apologize for that. That is uh, the angel speaking to Joseph and told Joseph his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And then Matthew expounds on that and says, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah that he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. That's, that's, it's good when I could come back to you in the evening and and let you know that there's a correction there from this morning. But it was not a doctrinal correction or a theological correction, so at least that's, that's good. Okay, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 to verse 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As for the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing in a time of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask for your wisdom, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to not only hear the word of God read, but to understand it and to apply it to our lives, that our faith may be fixed upon Jesus and that you, by your Spirit, would help us, O Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
so that in all things, O Lord, you receive the glory, honor, and praise. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, this evening we look at verses 4 to 10. Last week we looked at James chapter 3, verse 13 to the end of the chapter, and we saw how there are two ways of wisdom, two kinds of wisdom, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Wisdom from God in heaven or wisdom from below, the world, the flesh, the devil. And we saw how the wisdom from below manifests itself or reveals itself in the way that there are quarrels and fights and divisions among the people of God and among relationships. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, the word there is hedonism, pleasures, worldly pleasures, appetites, an appetite for evil, are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, possibly metaphorically or figuratively referring to hating one another, although some interpreters would say it's literal murder. But it seems like James follows the pattern of Jesus here, that if you hate your brother, you commit murder. If you slander your brother, speak evil against your brother, you commit murder. You covenant cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's the fruit of having wisdom from below and practicing wisdom from below. That's the practice of the devil. But in verse 4, James says, You adulterous people. I want to step back for a second <laughs> because pastor james doesn't hold back does he he doesn't water down his teachings when he addresses sin in the midst of the community of faith in fact james speaks like an old testament prophet he teaches like an old testament prophet and his teachings also reflect, as I've been saying, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the teachings of Christ from the Beatitudes. And he says, you adulterers, you adulterous people. Today, someone might say, say to Pastor James, hey, Pastor, you're not being very pastoral you're not being very kind. But James knows the seriousness. The seriousness of sin when it creeps its way in to the body of Christ and causes division, causes quarrels, causes fights. The, the terminology used here by James, especially in verse 1, is warfare language. The word quarrels can actually be translated battle or war. There are wars among you because your passions, your pleasures, your earthly pleasures are getting the best of you and it's affecting everyone. And James says, you adulterous people. First, we see here James 
sternly rebukes the unfaithful. James sternly rebukes the unfaithful. You adulterous people, you may notice in your footnote there, it says adulteresses. Adulteresses. It's okay, it's perfectly fine here to, for the ESV to have you adulterous people because the idea there is that the people of God are being unfaithful to God, disloyal to God. This is Old Testament language. When the prophets called out the Israelites for their idolatry, for flirting with the idols of the nations and giving in to idolatry. What did they call them? Adulterers. And here the bride of Christ are adulteresses because they're disloyal and unfaithful to their Lord and God. James rebukes and unfaithful people within the congregation, whether it's the whole congregation or whether it's a particular group, is unknown. But they were friends of the world, and therefore a friend of the world is no friend of God. You see, friends back then, to use the word friend, meant that you embraced everything about that person. Today we use friend loosely. My neighbor can be a friend. We often use the word acquaintance and friend synonymously. But these people were friends of the world, flirting with the world and disloyal to the Lord. You see, a Christian cannot conduct himself in the two ways of wisdom simultaneously. A Christian cannot sit on the fence, put one foot in the world of wisdom from below and one foot in the world of wisdom from above. It's not possible. You see, there's a great antithesis between the wisdom from above and wisdom from below. The wisdom from heaven and the wisdom from the world, the flesh, the devil. An antithesis means that there's complete opposites or two opposing, conflicting worldviews that are clashing against each other where there's no common ground. For example, we can use a political arena these days. You have the right and the left. There's virtually no common ground between the two worldviews. The only common ground is that they're Americans. (laughs) The only common ground between unbelief and belief is that we're created in God's image. Every man, woman, and child created in God's image. But the Christian is called out of this world, out of a life of evil desires and passions and the lust of the flesh, and called to put on Christ and to live for Christ. What does Baal have to do with Christ? What does Rome have to do with Jerusalem? What does the city of man have to do with the city of God? You see, for James, he's calling out at a disloyal people, calling them out for their actions, their conduct. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Hatred with God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James rebukes his Christian audience for their inner passions, causing wars and fights among the community, not reflecting those things that were mentioned earlier in chapter 3, where the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the 17th century, there was a philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. And in the preface of one of his treatises, he wrote this. He knew the Bible. He knew the Bible really well, actually. Didn't believe. Didn't believe it. Didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred. That is, rather than the virtues they pro proclaim or claim is the readiest criterion of their faith. Hatred and bitterness toward one another has become the criterion of their faith has taken over what the true criterion of the Christian's faith should ought to be, which is love, peace, mercy, impartiality, sincerity. In verse 5, James continues in his rebuke to the unfaithful. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously or enviously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now look carefully in your Bible with me. Verse 5 poses a difficult question. There's a translation question here. A translation difficulty. The ESV says, he yearns, that is, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. Or it can be translated in the following way. The spirit that he made to dwell in us yearns with envy. So which is it? Does God yearn jealously? As the ESV says here in verse 5, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Or is it the spirit of man that God made to dwell in us, that envies. You see the word envy there, jealousy is the word envy, and it's the word that's used negatively in Scripture. It's used negatively in James. And so the question is, what's the subject of the verb here? Yearns jealously. Is it God or the spirit of man? This is a difficult question. Most interpreters agree that 
James refers to the spirit of man as it relates to the spirit there and not the Holy Spirit. The spirit that God has made to dwell in us. So God made our human spirit to dwell in our human bodies. Boys and girls were, were created with body and soul, body and spirit. And God has made that spirit to dwell in us. But which is it? Is it the spirit that yearns or God that yearns jealously for the, our spirit? A difficult question. It seems like what he says afterwards helps us out. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Note the contrast there. But he gives more grace. It seems to me that he's referring to a different idea here. That the spirit that God has made to dwell in us yearns with envy. But God gives more grace. But God gives more grace. The Spirit struggles with envy in the heart, but God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But I will say this, either interpretation mustn't discourage us, mustn't mustn't cause us to wonder, well, does God have a problem in communicating here? No, the problem is us. You see, we're removed from the first century Christians when, when this was written. The point here is that God gives grace, and he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble in heart, and he gives more grace. So we can fix our mind on, okay, what's the Proper translation here and miss the main point, which is God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Are you following me? I don't want us to get hankered down on a translation issue when the issue really lies with us and our finite minds. Because the spirit of man is puffed up and prideful and God opposes the proud of heart, but to the humble spirit he gives grace upon grace grace to wash all your sin away, the sin of pride and evil, the sin of passion, pleasure, worldly pleasure. Secondly, James exhorts the unfaithful to repent in verses 7 to 10. There are 10 imperatives, 10 commands here. And essentially, it's the antidote to humbling yourself before God. James exhorts the unfaithful to repent. Exhortation is a call to action. Take action, Christian. And James unabashedly exhorts them to humble themselves before God by submitting themselves to God and to resist the devil and he will flee from them. And so we can say here that these commands... These commands are the way in which we humble ourselves before God, before our Lord, or literally humble ourselves in the presence of Almighty God. And so how do you humble yourselves before God? First, you submit yourself to God. Verse 7, submit yourself to God, therefore resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
There are two ways, friends. Two allegiances. We align ourselves with the Lord and submit to Him or align ourselves with the devil and his wisdom. Notice how James is contrasting between the two. Either submit to God and resist the devil or submit to the devil and resist God. When, we, when our souls are gripped by God and His truth, we're then equipped for battle. God and His Word are Satan's kryptonite. God and His Spirit, God and His truth, God and prayer makes the devil cringe. Remember, one little word shall what? One little word shall make him flee. James, or Peter, the apostle Peter speaks of the same thing. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. That is, withdraw from him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Friends, submit yourself to God, to the Lord. Second, humble yourself, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We see this here in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Very Old Testament language here. When we draw near to God, he promises. He promises to draw near to his people. To grant grace and mercy. To grant forgiveness of sins. Now I want you to take note what James doesn't say. You see, James doesn't ground his commands in what is true of the Christian. What we would call, he doesn't ground the commands or the imperatives in the indicative. And so someone can walk away, oh, James is being a moralist. How do we draw near to God? You notice there's no mention of drawing near to God through faith in Christ. Just because it's not there, it doesn't mean that it's not presupposed. Remember, James is speaking to Christians who know Christ and believe in Him, who have been born again by the word of truth and the will of God. James tells them to draw near to God and God will draw near to them. We can safely say that when we draw near to the Lord through Jesus Christ, God indeed draws near to us. And we can say too that when we look at the teaching of Scripture that though we are faithless, he, nevertheless, remains 
faithful. So that when we draw near to God, he will indeed draw near to us. Paul says the, trust, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And so James calls us to submit to God, resist the devil, and to draw near to God. And he will draw near to us because he's faithful. He's faithful to draw near. And so humble yourselves before God, submitting to him, resisting the devil, withdrawing from the devil, and drawing near to him through faith. And humble yourselves before God. Cleansing and purifying yourselves. Notice what he says here. Very Old Testament language. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 1. Turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, God rebukes the people of Judah for their wickedness, their adultery, their faithlessness. And the prophet boldly and unashamedly and unabashedly calls them to repent. He says at verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 1, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you should be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. James uses very similar language where the Old Testament spoke of the heart and the hands, the inner life of the, of the, the person of God, and the, the inner life and the outer life is a life that seeks after God and comes before God draws near to God with clean hands and a pure heart. And we know from the teaching of Scripture that the only way we come to draw near with clean and pure hearts, with clean hands and pure hearts, is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be ceremonially clean before God, we need to be cleansed. Be cleansed, O sinners. Purify your hearts you double-minded, you who walk in the wisdom of the world and walk in the wisdom of God. Go back and forth, straddling the fence. Humble yourselves before God. Cleanse and purify yourselves, you sinners and double-minded. And then he says, humble yourselves. Grieve your miserable condition. 
grieve your miserable condition. James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The proud rejoice in their evil deeds. The humble are contrite and lowly in spirit. Friends, how do you come and draw near to God? It's a serious question I have to you, for you today. How do you come and draw near to God? Do you come to Him apathetic? I don't care. Indifferent? Doesn't matter. Do you come to Him? Eh, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as Him. Do you come to Him like a Pharisee or a Sadducee? Or do you come to Him like a tax collector and sinner? How do you come to God and draw near to him? It is the humble of heart, the lowly of heart, that draws near to God and finds his cleansing and purification through the shed blood of Jesus. And they come to God, we come to God humbly, grieving who we are by nature. Grieving that we have offended his majesty. Grieving that we have offended our neighbor. When you have hateful thoughts in your mind for your neighbor, when you have hateful thoughts for your spouse, your child, when you have hateful thoughts, what do you do with them? When those hateful thoughts, those evil passions, then manifest themselves among the family, among the people of God, what do you do with them? What do you do with them? It's the prideful that doesn't deal with them and see them for what they really are in God's sight. And I dare to say, that this is a battle for every one of our hearts. Because life is all about me. Oh, we talk a good game. We talk a good game about God. We talk a good game about His grace. We talk a good game about his love for us. But what James gets to is how does your faith manifest itself? What is the wisdom that you show to your neighbor? What is the wisdom that you show to God? Are you leaning upon his wisdom or the wisdom of this world? You see, the proud rejoice in their deeds. The proud minimize their deeds and actions. The proud are indifferent. The humble know who they are before a holy God, and they grieve. 
They grieve their condition, and yet they rejoice in the God of their salvation. True repentance, true repentance is a hatred for sin and a desire to put them to death. True repentance is a hatred for sin and a desire to put them to death and to walk in newness of life. Every day I have to get up and ask my faithful Father for grace and mercy. Lord, I repent of my sin, of my passions, of my evil. I grieve them, but I find great joy in the Savior who paid them all. Lastly, God promises his grace to the humble. Earlier at verse 6, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then he lists out several commands there. And then he concludes by saying, now humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. God promises his grace to the humble. He promises that he will exalt you, Christian. And take note of that when we humble ourselves in God's presence. God will lift us up or raise us up. He will raise up the contrite sinner and exalt him or her. You see, James doesn't leave them with a rebuke, does he? He doesn't call them adulterers, you unfaithful people, smack them around a little bit so that they leave feeling discouraged and depressed. No, he says, humble yourselves before God, humble yourselves in the presence of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up from that dire position that you were in. He will give you grace. Literally it can be said, He will exalt your spirit. Raise your spirit up, O humble. O humble and contrite person. And when God lifts up our spirits, He gives us peace. He gives us peace. He gives us peace individually, but in the greater context of James, within the community of faith, he gives us peace within the body of Christ. And as I said last time, when you do not see peace in the body of Christ, then there's something happening within the hearts of his people, namely evil passions and desires that need to be rooted out and confessed. And the result of God's mercy and grace in lifting us up is this peace and healing 
from devastating wars and quarrels that can find themselves in the church of Jesus Christ. I heard something astonishing lately, just recently. It was really moving. I heard an elder speak of a time when someone was under church discipline and the person under church discipline denied the accusations, said he wasn't involved in a certain thing. I'm not going to go into it. And so he was not able to partake of the Lord's Supper. But he came to worship every Lord's Day. Two years passed, and the man was vindicated. The man was vindicated. He was right. And I heard an elder publicly say that we as elders had to confess our sin to the man and to the people of God because the issue brought discord. The issue brought pain within the body of Christ. I praised God when I heard that. Because the prideful thing to do is to not say anything or to justify. That hats off to him. Praise be to God. Because in that moment was the grace of God, was it not? The grace of God that brought healing to a man to an elder board, and to the entire body of Christ. You see where I'm going with this? You see where I'm going with this? Listen to Isaiah chapter 57. If you're taking notes, write these verses down. Isaiah 57, verses 15 to 21. Uh, Part of me thinks that, that James has this passage in mind when he's writing this section of scripture, writing this section of his letter. If you want to turn there, in fact, go for it. Isaiah chapter 57. Beginning at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Does that sound familiar? From James, that difficult verse. Again, let me read verse 16 again. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. 
but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up like mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God creates the fruit of lips, that is, lips that give a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. And that's where Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 quotes from. The Lord will lead, restore, comfort, heal the lowly and contrite. And so James, though he sternly rebukes them and he calls them to repentance and faith, nevertheless speaks to them a promising word. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. In other words, he who calls you is faithful. He will forgive you and have mercy upon you for the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us humble ourselves before God because God gives grace to the humble. Let us humble ourselves before God and know his healing and restoration. Let us humble ourselves before God and give praise and thanksgiving with our lips, expressing our gratitude to God for his salvation and healing mercies and abounding grace. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that by your Spirit you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. And as James writes earlier in his letter, we learn that we were born again by the word of truth according to the will of God. And you have implanted that word in our hearts. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, working through that word, that you would bring us to conviction of sin, that you would bring us to reconciliation, that you would consecrate us to live lives worthy of the calling, to live lives of holiness and righteousness. And as we draw near to you, may we draw near to you in faith in the Lord Jesus, finding the cleansing of our hands and the purification of our hearts solely in the shed blood of Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that you would humble us. Forgive us of our arrogance, our pride. Forgive us of, of our many transgressions and shortcomings. For indeed, we have missed the mark of your righteousness. But we look not to our righteousness, but to the righteousness of Jesus. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and grace that abounds and that you heal our wounds you heal our iniquities and you grant us lips of praise 
and peace which passes all understanding. We thank you again, Lord Jesus.